Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello and welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast and I'm your host, Eve Nuno. Skylight Books is an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. We are open every day from 10 to 5 for curbside pickup and mass in-store browsing. Um, You can shop online at skylightbooks.com and check out our upcoming events on our Crowdcast page, crowdcast.io slash skylightbooks. Um, Today we have Kazim Awi reading from his latest poetry collection, The Voice of Sheila Chandra, in conversation with Kiki Petrosino. Um, I'll read their bios and then Kazim will read from The Voice. Uh, and Kiku will also read a little bit um, from their latest book, White Blood. And then I'll let them take it away. Um, very excited for this conversation. Thank you both for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank um, you. Kazim Ali was born in the United Kingdom and has lived transnationally in the United States, Canada, India, France, and the Middle East. His books encompass multiple genres, including several volumes of poetry novels, and translations. He is currently a professor of literature at the University of California, San Diego. His newest books are a volume of three long poems entitled The Voice of Sheila Chandra and a memoir of his Canadian childhood, Northern Light, Power, Land, and the Memory of Water. Kiki Petrosino is the author of four books of poetry, White Blood, A Lyric of Virginia, Witch Wife, Hymn for the Black Terrific, and Fort Red Border, all from Sarah Band books. She holds a graduate degree from the University of Chicago, the University of Iowa Writers Workshop, the University of Chicago, and the University of Iowa Writers Workshop. Her poems and essays have appeared in Poetry, Best American Poetry, The Nation, The New York Times, Fence, Gulf Coast, Tin House, and online at Plowshares. She teaches at the University of Virginia as a professor of poetry. Petrosino is the recipient of a Pushcart Prize, a fellowship in creative writing from the National Endowment of the Arts, and an AI and an Al Smith Fellowship Award from the Kentucky Arts Council. Thank you both for being here. And yeah, I'll let you two take it away. Uh, so it's really great to be with you. And I'm actually especially glad to be doing this with Kiki because I feel that both of our two Um, these two books um, that we're just releasing now both contend with history, although of course in very different ways and different aesthetic approaches, but I feel like there's also an overlap 
in terms of a pretty innovative um, view for both of us of the possibilities of form. And I feel like we're both confronting what I think of as the problem of history, which is you can't really undo it. You can't really move on from it. And so what is one to do when one can do neither of those two things, but also not escape it? So I think both of our books are faints in a particular sortie, I said, um, which is a word that I think has double meaning because it means an attack in English, but it means an exit in French. And so I feel like we are you actually both using the lyric as a way of trying to engage with how, how as an individual do you um, live under the shadow of or within the context of what is often a violent history. So I'll read just three short little pieces here. So this, um, so this, my new book is a book of three long poems, but it is interspersed with little fragments that occur in between each. So this is the first piece in the book, this little fragment called Recite that opens the book. Small animal recite, you sent nowhere, arriving in the night. All my forgotten prayers, not prayers really, nothing to ask for, no one would answer. Crassness of calling a body a corpse, lawnmower sound through the window, a housekeeper singing, is this body a house? Is this house a body? God is like you, a misfit. You don't fit, he don't fit. Um, the second uh, two pieces I'll read. So the central poem of the book, which is the title poem, The Voice of Sheila Chandra, um, kind of engages actually and also metaphorically and figuratively with the music of Sheila Chandra, who is an um, Indian, um, British Indian pop singer turned devotional singer turned no longer a singer because she suffers from a or she has a neurological condition called burning mouth syndrome which um prevents her from using the mechanisms of her voice um the tongue the mouth the vocal cords although she can speak with some uh challenge and difficulty not and she not for very long and she no longer has the capability of singing so i try to engage with something about the question of loss of expression and so the long central long poem is comprised of 40 sonnet stanzas um, in a way it's a sonnet sequence and it's also one unified poem so i'll just read um two of those little sonnets this one is about a real color that exists actually called Vanta Black. Vanta Black was made for missiles or planes for defense purposes so dark no eye could see it. Some voices are like that no one could hear them. It is not good to be lost. To be lost is more than metaphor for spiritual condition. I sit at the terrace overlooking a green sea. Perhaps it is failure that ought to be sought. A voice that fails, falls silent. Sheila's or the bodies, the blue failed me. The sun fails every evening. I, we, you have all failed too. 
everyone who strove all these long years for peace failed. And this uh, last thing that I'll read is another sonnet from later in the collection. Uh, the, the, that color Vanta Black, it's actually been leased for exclusive use um, to the sculptor Anish Kapoor. In a world governed by storm and noise, why then should a singer not fall silent, though by great suffering her mouth, that orchestra, hall of flame, the drone, her most minuscule movement, still do the echoes resound, even now can I discern them. Anish Kapoor explores the place, sight disappears, rich, dark that opens, he makes shapes of them, invites you to understand or learn where the effort to understand fails. Agnes Martin, her shapes of white absence, both what, when the throat fails, sounds out, does Sheila still listen to music? What does it sound like? So that's a little, that's a little taste of the disruption and eruption that that music stirs for me. Thanks, cousin. It was such a beautiful reading. It's so wonderful to hear the poems in your own voice. But I also have to say that your voice comes through from the page because of the way that you've organized each um, each one of these poems. And I know that you started out by talking about how the book is divided um, basically into two kinds of modalities. You have your long poems, um, the Hesperines, um, which I think is a new form that you're inventing, possibly. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I meant to invent, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and that um, was actually given to me by Olga Brumas, but yeah. Wonderful, right? Like a poem to the evening star, right? Um, a yeah. Curse. A curse to the evening. A curse to the evening. Yeah, yeah. there's a poem to the evening and there's a curse to the dawn, but yes. there's a curse to the darkness that's falling. Yeah, and then you have these like shorter sections the first of which is recite, which reminds me of recitative uh, in opera, you know, that this is uh, your time of kind of, um, we think we have a little bit of time to meditate on, on, what the, on what the longer poems may bring to us, you know? So I, I just mean to say that um, I can hear you, <laughs> you know? I can hear you um, even without the benefit of hearing your voice uh, speak them. And the, and the issue of voice is so uh, salient to the collection that maybe we can and talk about that too. Um, so I'm, I'm going to read three poems from my latest collection, White Blood, A Lyric of Virginia. And this is a collection of poems that I began writing in 2016, shortly after the death of my grandmother, who was my last remaining grandparent. Um, and after she passed away, I realized that uh, I, I no longer had access to that generation. Uh, I could no longer ask my grandparents questions about their lives and their stories. Um, and even though I had gotten a little bit of, of that information while they were still here, I realized that uh, if I wanted to know any more, I would have to actually do research and, and find out more about them, and especially about this particular grandmother. 
so in 2016, I started um, going to Virginia, which was kind of a return for me because I had actually spent my undergraduate years at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Um, uh, but in 2016, I, I, I returned in part to Charlottesville, but then also to some adjacent counties in Virginia where I had ancestral roots. Uh, where my grandmother's family is, is, uh, was from, uh, and my grandfather as well, and learning about the history of my family among the free and enslaved African Americans um, in Central and Northern Virginia. Uh, while I was working on those poems, the uh, infamous Unite the Right rally took place in 2017 in August in Charlottesville, and I had just come back from a research trip in Charlottesville, uh, so I watched from my then home in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, the footage of Charlottesville um, being overrun by white supremacists. Uh, and then I, it, it became even more clear to me that I had to compose a book, not only about my family, but about the complex legacies of racism, slavery, discrimination across the centuries um, in Virginia. So this book has a number of different sections in it. Um, some of them are named after particular counties. And I wanted to devote some time to Albemarle County, which is in fact where Charlottesville is in central Virginia. Uh, and that's also where Thomas Jefferson's Monticello is located, his famous home on the mountain. Um, and so I'll read, um, I'll read some poems from that section. The shop at Monticello. I am a black body in this commonwealth which turned black bodies into money. Now I have money to spend on little trinkets to remind me of this fact. I'm a money machine and my body constitutes the commonwealth. I spend and spend in order to support this. I support this mountain with my black money, strange mountain in late bloom, strange mansion built on mountains of wealth, I spend so much I'm late for the tour where I'm a blooming black dollar sign. I look good in the dome room prowling its high gloss floor. It's common to desire such flooring for my own home, but owning a home is still strange. My blackness makes strange tools for a living, rakes the strangeness like dirt. I like to rake my hands over merchandise, bayberry votives, English hyssop, and crisp sachets. I like this engraved pewter bookmark so much suddenly, I line up for it, clenching my upright fist. I pay cash to prove myself no shoplifter. Still, I abscond with my black feelings, crisp toast points dunked in fig jam. On one hand, I must think very highly of myself to come here. Then again, that sounds like something I would say. Next poem is called Farm Book, and that takes its title from a kind of compendium of Jefferson's plantation records. He kept a book, um, kind of a day book, that talked about what, what crops he was planting, what experimental seeds he was planting around Monticello. Um, he very much wanted Monticello to be a kind of self-sufficient little kingdom in, uh, in terms of its ability to produce um, food. And uh, of course, Jefferson loved wine and he loved um he loved all kinds of different like european culinary techniques uh so he was trying to grow some of his favorite foods in the gardens in monticello uh, he would also take measurements of the weather every single day and uh sometimes in the farm book you would see reference to certain enslaved people who were doing work 
around Monticello. And this poem combines a kind of meditation on, on, on Jefferson and his, the way that he ran the plantation, um, along with um, thinking about my own career in academia at the University of Louisville, where until very, very recently, there was a 70-foot tall granite obelisk um, for the Confederate dead of Louisville um, that had been erected in the late 1800s and 1890s. Um, and was there during most of the time that I was teaching at the university. The University of Louisville also has uh, at the center of its academic campus, a brick domed building that was actually an emulation of Jefferson's rotunda at the University of Virginia. So I spent the first part, first decade of my career in academia in this kind of dark mirror of Charlottesville and the university, but uh, in the literal shadow of a Confederate monument. Farm book. Whenever I write about Mr. Jefferson, he gallops over. Knock, knock, he begins in quadruplicate. It's pretty wild, like my student's poem about a, a house of skin and hair, a house that bleeds. Mr. Jefferson's place is so dear to me, white husk my heart beats through until I can't write more. In my student's poem, the house stands for womanhood, pain coiled in the drywall, sorrow warps the planks pulling nails from ribs. In Kentucky, I'm the only black teacher some of my students have ever met, and that pulls me somewhere. I think of Mr. Jefferson sending his field slaves to the ground, a phrase for how he made them pull tobacco and hominy from the earth, but also for how he made of the earth an oubliette. At 16, they went to the ground if Mr. Jefferson thought they couldn't learn to make nails or spin. He forgot about them until they grew into cash or more land. For him, it must have seemed like spinning, sorrow of souls forced to the ground as a way of marking off a plot. At 16, I couldn't describe the route to my own home, couldn't pilot a vehicle, could hardly tell the hour on an analog clock. I had to wear my house key on a red loop around my neck. Now I rushed a class beneath a bronze confederate, his dark obelisk, his silent mustache. My books tumble past the lectern as I recite Mr. Jefferson's litany, swan, loon, nuthatch, kingfisher, electric web of names, yet in the ground I know a deeper weave of gone away ones who should mean more to me than any book. I live in language on land they left. I have no language to describe it. And the third poem um, is by request of Kazim. Uh, it's called The Art of Cookery Made Plain and Easy, which is the title of one of the cookbooks that historians have confirmed um, were used at Monticello for the meals, the many meals that were served there to the family and to many, many guests from all around the world. And so that book was originally um, by a woman named Hannah Glass, and it was published in Dublin in 1747. And I use a form, uh, an eight-line form called a triolet, which is a French form, but I adapted it a little bit um, for this poem. And the reason I chose a French form is because Jefferson was so fond of French culture and all things um, in terms of French cuisine. And uh, of course, he was the minister to France. The art of cookery made plain and easy. If I have not wrote in the high, polite style, I hope I shall be forgiven. 
if I've gripped my rawhide in the wrong hand, or if I've knotted the rope in some high polite style. Such an odd jumble of things might spoil you for good. The right sauce served wrong only glazes the error. We all hope we shall be forgiven in high style. Forgive the poor light where I sit writing. Reading that poem, um, I think the reason I wanted to hear you read that poem is because that poem occupies, I think in a way it occupies the conceptual center point mm -hmm. of the book. And it's where um, you, the writer, let drop the veil, I guess you would say, mm -hmm. uh, and, and exist in the book because the rest of the book, so much of it is, I mean, the, the poems have the speak, speaker and the autobiographical speaker, but that speaker is engaged in the action of contending with the history um, you know, that beautiful poems about, you know, visiting the tourist site that is Monticello and kind mm -hmm. of the randomness of that. And then the other sequences of the um, sort of erasure sequences of the, um, the DNA test. Um, but that poem is sort of like the moment where you are, you are bare as the writer who is writing the book, which I found really interesting. Um, but what I'd like to ask you about actually, um, or maybe we could talk about with both of our books is yeah. this question of um, not, not solely the question of form, because I think both of us, um, you know, are relying on, on received form in the book and then in some cases an invention, inventions of forms, but also the book, it's, your book itself is, has a structured form in that it has this the DNA test, the three sections, and then the two long sequence, the sequences that happen in between those. Um, so I just wondered if you might talk about how this book evolved, because it seems like um, it's it's really composed as a as a full piece in a really interesting way. Yeah, I love the fact that we were talking about form, I have come to believe that the answer to all of my writer's block questions is form. Mm -hmm. um, and I found myself at the beginning of this project not sure how to write about this topic. There's, you know, Virginia is such an old place uh, and slavery existed here in Virginia from the moment that their colonial settlements began. You know, we know about, because of the 1619 project, we know about how important this, the arrival um, of those first few enslaved uh, men and women, we know how that important arrival of 1619. But what about, you know, earlier, 1607, if we think about, um, if we think about Jamestown, um, you know, it just, we can keep going back forever, you know, and, and in some ways there is no beginning from which to, to start talking about the history uh, of, of race in Virginia. And then we move forward and the legacies of all that are, are still with us now. Um, from 2017, certainly as an example, but now um, the headlines are just kind of rushing even faster towards us. So how do you talk about something that is still happening, but that has no beginning? Uh, the answer is you have to find a poetic form or a suite of poetic forms that actually um, require you to use constraint. 
And so that's why I became really interested in erasure, which you take a found text and you cross out words or you white out words in order to make the poem from the negative space. Um, I was interested in sonnets as well, just as you were interested in sonnets. Uh, and the double sonnet crown requires you to repeat uh, the last line of the preceding sonnet becomes the first line of the succeeding sonnet. Um, triolets also require rhyme, and, and I, I added something in there by kind of reconfiguring lines from the cookbooks themselves. Um, so I was really, really interested in finding like places where my language could lean against something or push against something um, as a way to create the, the resistance that I needed to come up with the poetry that uh, that would speak to a history that is so so hard to contain in language itself you know yeah, so, I, think yeah. Really, I think it's really important what you point out that um when you try to think about where does the history of race begin in the, the history of virginia and there's no origin point i think that one of the points you know one of the truths that's revealed in the reading of this book in particular in the in the poem Terrorum, um, which is um, just before the, like at the end of the Mont Monticello sequence, it's, it, it is that you don't have a history of Virginia without the, the Black history of Virginia, that it's, they're inseparable. And I think that's what we have not yet confronted in many different ways. Um, one of the questions that comes up in, you know, Donald Trump's America and the treatment of the Muslim as other, is that at the heart of the American, the founding of the American nation, were Muslims. African people who yeah. were here at the beginning who yeah. were Muslim. That's right, and, yeah. And, and, yeah, and so, and, uh, you know, Sylvain Duaif is one of the critics who's talked about the evolution of Black Christianity. There's a question about, this consistent question about like uh, how black Christianity developed as such a unique expression of Christianity and, and, and the differences. And as she's pointing out is what, what that, the roots of black Christianity are was, was the Islam that was being practiced by the enslaved populations that they were not allowed to practice. And so it transmuted itself into, and all the orality and the, you know, the, um, the various different kind of hallmarks of, of Southern black Christianity that exist she's drawn scholarly connections to how Islam was practiced in West Africa. Right, almost as if the, you know, Christianity itself is the, is the constraint, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, against which this, this like incredibly generative practice began, you know? Uh, so many things are like that, uh, I realize now they work they, you know, that so many things come to life because they're in a small space or there's something that's imposed from the external. And then paradoxically, this lush, vibrant um, kind of expression can come from that, you know? So then, so let me turn it back on you, on you, Cosm. And, yeah. you know, you're using, you're using, on one hand, you have your, your handful of, of poems like Recite that are brief lyrics that use a lot of wordplay, not necessarily double entendre, but like reconfiguring the line you just said to say something different. And then you have these very um, beautiful, but very long and multi-layered, very textured 
using very long full lines, these longer sequences um, of poems that you're writing, the Hesperines, for example. Um, so how did you conceive of the form of that, of that for the book? Well, I had, um, I've, I have a, a love for um, thought that unfolds um, after a long time. And I have a love for, for um, I guess, the spent. Um, the, the, the short lyric has so much charge in it. And I think the most successful short lyric kind of releases that charge in an exciting way. But I'm, I'm, I'm also really interested in endlessness, especially when you think about history and contending with history and history not having a beginning and history not having an end. And um, the idea of um, just unrolling, unrolling and unrolling and what happens after and what happens after. Um, Carol Meso's a writer who's been really important to me, and she talked about this in, as it relates to lyric fiction, um, what happens after you climax? What happens after the moment where you can't go on any further? And so I kind of became interested in, you know, for example, Jory Graham uh, was a writer that was important to me, is, is a writer who's important to me. Um, and her poems that go like three, four pages, five pages, and you just kind of keep discovering, keep discovering and um, re-exploring, I guess you would say. So that was that was kind of one impulse. In the case of the Hesperine for David Berger, which is the long poem that, the first long poem in the, in the sequence, uh, the, the, the repeating patterns of, you know, geometrical forms and, um, the repeating patterns of form in classical Islamic architecture, the abstraction of the form of calligraphy, those are all the, the classical Islamic arts are all non-representational arts. It's um, calligraphy, architecture, and geometry, I guess you would say, or geometric form. They're, they're, not, uh, they're not unrelated, so you see them in, in any mosque, you'll see all three of those, um, all three of those things. And I really, imagined a poetic form that could kind of inhabit that or incorporate that in which there wasn't just a like an Aristotelian dramatic structure to it. So even the sonnets that happen in the middle section in the title poem, they don't have one single turn. It's not like octet turn sestet or the classical Shakespearean, you know, 12 lines turn two lines. It's, there are multiple turns within the poem. And as you referred to earlier, visually there are, are often line breaks at very weird moments. And then like a midline caesura, like unmarked caesura, because there's no punctuation in the book at all of any kind, except in the um, third long poem, there are little, sometimes little periods mm -hmm. that happen. But um, I was really, really, I really wanted to immerse myself, I guess you would say in the fluidity of thought. Mm -hmm. I mean, would it be wrong? Am I off base in reading? I read all of the longer poems in the book as belonging under the umbrella of this form, the Hesperian. The yeah. idea yeah. of a poem, a twilight poem that is built through braiding various materials, um, various narratives, people's stories, um, scientific information. Um, a poem that feels like it's written just past sunset, but before it gets really dark. Uh, a poem that in 
in turn, it curses the darkness, but it also welcomes the darkness in some ways. Um, you know, even though only one poem announces itself as a Hesperine, wouldn't you say that the other one, longer ones are that? They, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you say that because yes, of course they are. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's something that could have just been put in a note in the book, I suppose, as well as the explanation of what a Hesperine is. Um, although the explanation for that is inside the first poem. Yeah. Uh, I just made a decision not to like, you know, there are certain things that you can, you don't have to explain every last no. thing. No, no, it's yeah. very much something that I feel as though I'm being taught to read the poems as I read them. Uh, so I think that, I think that they all fit together. Each one stands on its own. However, I feel this twilight feeling. I feel this evening star feeling, um, even in the, the way that the speaker, um, the way that the speaker positions themselves in each, in each poem, the repeating, the kind of geometrical way, um, that you were talking about belonging to Islamic art. I saw maybe some of that in the sections of the of the, the final long poem that are, um, they're like blocks uh, of letters that almost read like a code or a word search. Um, but really they're constellations in a way that, that we're being asked to read in the, in the poetry, you know? So there's something stellar about um, about what you're doing, and I mean that in in both the quality of the work and also in the fact that I think that stars and the evening and the evening star are all present in these. I wanted to ask you about an image that shows up in recite, uh, and that is the image of the body and the house, um, because that's something that showed up in my poem farm book as yeah, well yeah. the question of is this body a house is this house a body um and i wrote about my students in one particular fall and then, semester and later and later in your book of course when when the smiths the ghosts of the smiths you mm -hmm. know say like you know what was it like having a body you know they're, yeah. asking, you, they're asking the present right know, the black person of the 2020 mm -hmm. what was it like having a body because for us we did our bodies did not belong to us you know yeah, right? Yeah. And then after death, the body is shed, right? Yeah. So, and there was one particular semester when I was working on this book that my, my undergraduate students kept writing poems in which houses became bodies, um, or in which, in which um, the, the materials of a house became organic and, and fleshed out. And I wanted to think about what that, what that might mean um, for a student to ask in a poem. And then I came across it in Recite. And I wonder what your take is on that question. Is the house actually the poem that you're building, you know? Yeah, you know, the ha for me, so there, <laughs> it's a little esoteric in terms of what you believe about the soul and what you believe about material, um, the material of the body. Um, but I think that, you know, one of the most critical parts of, you know, post-enlightenment thinking, I guess you would say, one of the most important things there is, you know, to be modern, to be a contemporary um, political body, is that we as individuals have a personal sovereignty over the physical boundaries of our body. That's essential. I mean, that's essential to being 
a, cit a citizen in the, in the body politic, um, the, the benefit is that we own our bodies. What's inside, what goes past into our skin, we have lordship over, right? So if somebody enters your body against your will in various, in any form of that, including like a bullet going into you, you have rights against that person. You have legal rights um, and moral rights against that person. And that what happens in your body is governable only by you. So an involuntary surgery, for example, is a crime you are able to determine like that that is supposed to be essential and yet in a million different ways in contemporary american society it's still money based on money for example the issue of reproductive choice in your body if you have enough money if you throughout history if you had enough money you always had that choice, no matter whether it was politically legal or not. You were always able to have whatever types of reproductive health decisions could be made, could be made for you if you were white, of course, because the control of reproductive um, procedures of dark bodies and black bodies in the United States was, was always the province of whoever the ownership was, right? Whoever the legal ownership belonged to. And to me, the idea of the body as the house or the body, what was it like to have a body, which is a question question that the book the spirits of the smiths ask what was it like to have a body it's like only now in history do we at least on paper have bodies because in the past the bodies belonged to the slave owner the government the church um whoever it was the king your body belonged to the king um we are supposed to now belong to ourselves we're supposed to have freedom of movement we should be able to go where we'd like to go. Um, the notion that a national border exists that could prevent you from walking, you know, where, you know, wherever you go. All of these reasons are, um, they have their roots in profit and they have their roots in the control of the flow of profit and who has the right to uh, resources of a given place. And so all of the, all of these, um, laws and regulations are against the moral victory um, and, sp and spiritual victory, if you want to call it, of the Enlightenment, which declared that each person, that Kiki Petrosino is in charge of that body of Kiki Petrosino. Like, you're the one who says what goes with it. Nobody else is allowed to say what goes with it. I mean, that was, you know, this shift in human history to say control over their own body. Their parents don't control it. The government doesn't control it. God, whatever that means, doesn't control it. Uh, another person doesn't control it. You control it. And yet we still find ourselves um, in this bind in this country and in many places around the world where that is just not functionally true for right. many people, many, many people. And now in, you know, 2020, the year of this pandemic, we do find ourselves placed very much at home um, and not always, not, I mean, there's a lot of privilege in being able to shelter in place, but it also feels non-consensual, right? Like I would like to leave my home. I would like to do, to do, to travel, especially beyond national borders and use my passport, you know? Uh, but I'm constrained, you know, I'm constrained by the circumstances and I'm constrained by the fact that, um, other countries have have decided it's not time for Americans to come visit, you know? Uh, so when will, you know, when will I, when will we be able to, to, 
to break out of that and to ha- and to have that thing again that we used to have. Um, I wonder to what extent you feel like the poem is a body, is the poem a house? Um, are poems, do poems have bodily autonomy? After all, the reader does enter, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that, um... To me, the poem, a, po- a poem, the, when I say the poem, I guess I mean conceptually, but any poem is um, an encounter area to, and to, to enter into. And you know, the, there's a, that game I've always wanted to play. I've never, never played it. I really want to. When this is all over, you and me, um, I, that game, Escape Room. Is... Oh, I don't want to ever play that. But <laughs> yes, I know. It sounds so I, stressful to I, me. I want to play I want to go in and then you have to kind of explore, you have to figure out the, you see what's been left for you, figure out the puzzle. It's not that I think a poem has a key, like to understand it. I think there's a lot of different ways of encountering a poem. But I guess I would say in, in, in the kind of classic, uh, what Roland Barr talks about in The Pleasure of the Text, between the readerly text, which is a text that is more oriented to the reader to, re- to receive and to understand easily and quickly, like a Harlequin romance or what have you, nothing against Harlequin or or that genre of romance, uh, but but um, but a, a form of writing that is easy to understand and that has expected conventions versus a writerly text, which the writer is giving ambiguity. The reader must really go into it and become a diviner in a sense, um, and that is what is most interesting to me. So then, mm-hmm. maybe the metaphor of a poem as a house to be explored. Um, you are really enter, entering into and encountering in, in, in your book um, a, a history that is unknown and that can't be known. Um, the two other writers that I thought of in Counterpoint to your book were, um, of course, Nervesi Philip in her book Song because of the erasure poems, like very much put me in mind since that book is not quite an erasure, but more of a found text uh, manipulation of the of the legal decision mm-hmm. and then there is also Lucille Clifton's poems about trying to discover what happened to her family you know there's a very famous poem about the nameless ancestor and she says something like what is her name because the, mm-hmm. the name will never be known it's it's uh, erased as part of history uh, mm-hmm. or Lucille Clifton's book Generations where uh, the great-grandmother Mammy Caroline who was actually born in Africa refuses to tell the African name she won't give it and that similar reticence appears when, when in your poem where you're trying to explore Harriet and Butler Smith's life and mm-hmm. they themselves speak and say, look, we avoided, we didn't register when we were supposed to. We didn't go and give the bank the information. Like those same archival tools that you, that, uh, that you as a researcher or a poet in the present would be able to use to track down the erased history or the suppressed history and the people who are in that history are almost giving a reason why they absented themselves from the new history, making them, you know, all the reasons they would want to stay under the radar, as we now say. So I'm curious to know um, from you, I mean, then it's you, it's you yourself who's, who is imagining that truth, right? Yes, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, it, for me, the research process in re- with regard to my own genealogy and those ancestors was a, really a journey of discovering how to read the information that was there. I first went into the research process thinking I would use my, you know, scholarly human humanist 
skills as a researcher, I'd perform a few magical keyword searches, like advanced keyword searches, and I would find like the names of not only my family members, but I would be able to find the names of the plantation estates where my ancestors were held. Um, and I figured with Virginia being Virginia, that there would be a good chance that a lot of those estates still existed in some form. There's a lot of historical preservation happening here in Virginia, uh, but there's also a lot of heritage tourism, which is a word, right? A term to describe um, a kind of touristic visit that involves going to some of these um, historical sites and, and maybe staying in one as an Airbnb or something. I thought to myself, what if I could find some of those plantations? What if, what if one was restored? What if one was on Airbnb and I could actually stay there? What would that mean? I thought about it in those terms. And as I went through the records, I realized that there was a whole lot less about the whatever white families may have owned my ancestors. There really wasn't a whole lot of information in the historical record. And there was also no oral history from my own family about what what white families had quote unquote owned them and at first i was really frustrated about this what i perceived as a gap in the information but then it started to feel intentional it felt like the name wasn't passed down because the name of those people those names weren't important to my ancestors what was important? Well, what was important were the, what they named their children. They named their children after one another, after their own parents, after their siblings. Uh, and you know, African American naming practices have have changed and shifted over time. But in the in the 18th and 19th centuries, you would name your children after close family members. So that became a, a record. Those names became a record. Of what was important and who were important to particular ancestors. They also left land. They went to the courthouse and they had a clerk file a last will and testament as soon as they were legally able to do that. A lot of them couldn't read and write, so the clerk would write out the will, but it was filed, you know? Um, so the places where the land that they farmed, those coordinates became more important than the places where they were actually enslaved. So even though I found out a few of those names and a few properties, it wasn't nearly as central to my search as I thought it was going to be, you know? So what I learned to do as a result of the research was I learned like a new kind of literacy. I knew, I learned how to read what was important to those ancestors. And it started to feel like they had left things for me to find. They left the important things for me to find, you know? Yeah, I, I, um... I just uh, wonder, you don't have to answer this question if you don't want to, but um, it, it, because I mentioned Zong and Lucille Clifton, um, yeah. both Norbasi Philip and Lucille Clifton are two writers whose research methods, quote unquote, yes. um, included the kind of beyond the, uh, um, I can't think of the word I'm thinking, beyond the normative, I guess you would say, in terms of channeling and, um, you know, ritual or magic. Um, mm -hmm. I think Lucille Clifton was a real um, unironic believer in uh, psychic connections and mm -hmm. right. player audience and ghost right. speaking. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious if, if you indulge 
Jenny of that in your writing practice, whether I, uh, whether you know, unironically or ironically. Yeah, well, you know, Clifton's long poem, Message from the Wands, is I take three lines of that to make it the epigraph for white blood, and, and it, right. three lines are pay attention to what sits inside yourself and watches you. Um, you know, I uh, wouldn't say that I'm an adherent or something to, to um, like, psych, like psychic, um, to the psychic journey or to the psychic connection. But for me, because I was so, I'm so steeped in scholarly research techniques, I end up privileging those over other kinds of knowledge that are more intuitive, but no less robust. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so for me, when I ask scholarly research questions, it, I'm privileging certain kinds of information. But as I get into the materials and get to know the materials better, I can see the hands of my ancestors at work. I can see their agency at work. And that feels magical to me because it leads me in unexpected directions, which is incidentally why I love poetry, because a poem will lead me towards something that where I didn't know that I was going there, you know? Um, and I feel like maybe something similar happened to you, Cosm, when you were writing your book. Um, the Hesperine poem braids together not only the story of Berger, but we begin with what happened at Yale with that window, right? The stained glass window. Uh, yeah. And so you have two athlete stories, and then you have the story of, um, of Manaphy who broke the window that was a stained glass window portraying uh, enslaved people uh, on the Yale campus. So as you were braiding together these three different stories, um, plus more information into your long poem, did you know where you were going when you were writing it? Um, not in the beginning, not in the first draft. It was very much just like a repeated unfolding. Um, I did work a long time on that poem. I did go back and separate out all the different strands. I labeled all the different strands. I coded them in the draft mm -hmm. and then tried to create an architecture in terms of how they move from one thing to another. Um, mm -hmm. What I discovered after the poem was completed and published is that the window at Yale that was shattered was then uh, some of the pieces fell on the street. So they're in police evidence to this day. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, but the broken window was given to the Yale Art Museum. There was a decision made by Yale. Um, th so the window was broken during the student's campaign to have what was then called Calhoun College renamed because Calhoun had owned slaves. And so they said that the students were saying, um, in the present day, we don't need to, that's a part of history, but we don't need to honor in the present tense that figure, who is a former vice president of the United States. Um, and they wanted the college renamed. And the, the provost of the college or the dean of the college, somebody decided it should not be changed. The, the historical legacy, you can't erase. We, the better thing to do would be to contend with history. This was the logic that was used. And in the middle of this battle, who then became active in the campaign and spoke at some of the rallies, etc. He broke the window. <clears throat> Yale then, after pressure, they um, 
uh, reinstated him and gave him, offered him his old position back, which he took. He still works at Yale and um, declined, requested, declined to press charges and requested the New Haven Police Department not press charges. So at any rate, Yale gave the museum, the window to Carol Snow, who's the conservator at the art museum, who was meant to restore the window and that it would be part of the educational collections. Now I happened to, Carol Snow happened to be, uh, I think she's married to somebody who was either vacationing or working in Homer, Alaska. And I was in Homer, Alaska for the, uh, a great, amazing, really fun um, writing conference that doesn't happen anymore because the University of Alaska lost all of its funding. But um, we were there and we were talking at some party and she said, I'm the one who restored the window. And I said, what that, that was, what was that like? And she said, well, what I did was rather than restore the window to what it would have originally looked like as a stained glass window, I restored it as broken. So it's in a frame with enough glass filling it in between the shards to show the shattered pieces. That's actually the image on the cover of my book is the shattered window. And that, it, I didn't know that when I was writing the poem, but the poem itself contends with how do you, you know, history breaks us and you can't go back. So we have the two athletes, David Berger, who was the Israeli athlete who was killed in Munich at the 1972 Olympics, and then the contemporary Palestinian sprinter, Mohammed Al-Khatib, who was trying to train for uh, the 2016 Olympics in Rio. And one of the very little obscure, um, uh, obscure difficult conditions of the Israeli occupation of the West Bank is that the distance runners in Palestine and runners in general in Palestine cannot do long runs because there's no 10 mile stretch of road or 12, 20 mile stretch of road to be able to train for a marathon or to run to do a long run. And so people, when they do long runs in Palestine, in Ramallah or what have you, they'll just run back and forth down a road of a mile, back and forth, back and forth. That's how they run for 20 miles or they have to run on a track. They don't have the space and freedom because of the checkpoints. So I just found this ironic counterpoint between David Berger, who was an American, uh, who's raised in Cleveland, but the Israeli uh, Olympic teams at the time, and maybe still, I don't know, uh, field uh, Jewish athletes from around the world. And so he determined to compete for Israel. So he actually flew to Israel to train and then fly to Germany from Israel to participate. He was the only athlete who was killed in the Olympic village. The rest of them were killed at the airport. And he was the only athlete who was not buried in Israel when his comrades were flown to Israel to be buried. He, his body was flown back to Cleveland and he's buried outside Cleveland. That started this whole thing, you know? Um, and I just had to follow the trail in the dark. Um, mm -hmm. Muhammad did not qualify for the 2016 Olympics in Rio, but he decided to train again for Tokyo and he did qualify for Tokyo. So if everything goes well, he will, he will run in Tokyo in 2021. Hopefully it will happen. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, you know, I'm getting kind of an echo when I'm speaking. I hope you're not hearing an echo of me, but um, okay. in any event, so what you have are three, each one, each story 
that you're tracing here in your poem is vibrant and 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 would would be an amazing story in and of itself but you're using three right you're layering three together and i think that that it's hard work to do you know you have to give the reader enough um, information that we can follow the threads are um, narratively but we also need to understand why in the poem like why you chose these three stories you know and and why these three accounts are kind of coalescing for you in the poem and I, I and I think that uh, the question that you ask it within the poem is in the line how can one create in painting in sound in the poetry of the body the new and abiding future life you know and, and you also talk about the extent, you know, the impossibility of uh, restoring or um, bringing back to life something that has been broken, like the window, you know, or the life of David Berger. Yeah. Um, but to what extent do you feel like your poetry points towards, towards, the, towards the abiding future life? Um, that's, that's really, that's, that's the rub. That, that's it, exactly that. Um, that engagement with the broken and the restoration of the broken mm -hmm. as uh rather than putting together the past it is it is putting together the present putting together the future mm -hmm. um, and that is at the heart of jewish mystical practice as well um the restoration uh and you know david berger's parents who at least when i was writing the poem were still alive in cleveland although i never met them but they too came they were in a lineage of a family that had, um, you know, lost people in the Holocaust and had come to the United States as refugees. And his father was a medical doctor who kind of had a career out of working with people who were Holocaust survivors. It was one of the things that he was known for in the community as well. And I just thought of these two men, they were both, David Berger was 27 when he was killed and Muhammad Al-Khabib was 27 at the time that I was, writing the poem, and I was just thinking about these two men who had so much in common, who would never be able to meet each other. Mm -hmm. um, and the fracture of the land there, one of the things when I was in Palestine and traveling into um, the, Israel, the 1948 um, delineated Israel, you know, across the occupied border, um, although on the ground, it's, it's a little more porous situation than that. Um, but one of the things that I was really recognizing as I was interacting with people, writers, painters, poets, yogis, professors on both sides, realizing that they were meeting each other in my body. Um, mm -hmm. That because of law and circumstance, these were people, not people who were gonna be able to talk to one another. Mm -hmm. um, and so the creative act became this act of, um, almost of divination. Um, as it does, I think, in your book, with the, with the poem, you know, the poems that we were talking about at the end where the erasure of history necessitates poems like the sequence of poems that threads through the message from the free smiths of Louisa County or the act of divination that you did in the erasure poems, uh, which are less to me an erasure and more of a construction um, mm -hmm. as what Norvasi Philip was doing in her book as well, where you are actually making, making a new meaning of this the scatteredness of it. The other thing that was really interesting to me about your book, I want to say, is that it actually owns its own incompletion mm -hmm. because 
not only in the DNA test do the percentages not equal 100, <laughs> so there's a, a whole other part that's left out, but the final section in your book uh, bears the title interlude. Yeah. So you have this interlude, and but then the book is a, the book ends. <laughs> right. So I'm really fascinated by the gesture of incompletion in both of those, and I wondered, um, since we're told we're going to ask one more question, um, yeah. that would be my last to you. Would be if you would reflect on that a little bit. Yeah, you know the research process continues, you know, and I'm going to write some more um, about these family members and about Virginia, about the, our our shared national history, both um, the positive and the and the frightening and the sad. Uh, so the interlude means that there are going to be more poems along these lines in the near future. Um, but it also points to the fact that we in America have the ability to compose the rest of the song, you know, or to, or to contribute to a song that, ha that is, is still happening. Um, I don't think that history is closed. Um, and on a very practical level, documents keep being discovered uh, from, from our history. And those documents are getting digitized and archived and, and they're made ex being made accessible to people like me uh, through sites like Ancestry um, and through uh, the Library of Virginia, through the National Archives. These are all sites uh, that I can go to find out information that even 10 years ago would not have been there, you know? So I don't wanna put a, uh, a full stop on any of this discovery because I want to keep the possibility for new poems open. So that's why we're just in an interlude here at the end of White Blood and not um, not at the coda, let's say. Um, yeah, Cousin, what do you think about uh, your book? Do you see this as a complete movement? Are you going to continue writing in this vein? Um, for me, every new book is uh, a whole other universe, I guess you would say. Um, things do recur. Uh, the form, the initial form, so each of the three long poems has its own very different form. Um, the initial Hesperine for David Berger are these very long, nonlinear, um, monastic lines, which is a form that kind of came from my book, Bright Felon. Um, the voice of Sheila Chandra is the sonnet sequence. Um, and then the final poem, Phosphorus, has those little sections that you talked about with the, the word grids and stuff like that. So um, in my new work, I have been sticking with the sonnet form. Um, it's been fracturing e to an even greater degree than existed in the sonnets in Sheila Chandra. And the language has been getting more and more, um, uh, I've been delving deep, I've been digging deep into English. So I've actually been writing these sonnets in uh, a mixture of dictions from very contemporary 2021. English vernacular, uh, back to Shakespearean, back to Middle and Chaucer English, um, and further back into English that incorporated Middle French um, and Middle Norse, as well as Scottish, which had its own um, root, sense of root, um, sense of roots and lineage and language, and Indian Standard English, which is also a different form of English. So I'm kind of excited about doing something a little more polylingual, a little more polyphonic. Um, and paying even more attention to the music of the syllable, Wonderful. which is exciting for me. <laughs> Keeps it fresh. <laughs> wow. Thank you both. That was great. I think it's a perfect 
uh, way to end the conversation through interlude. Yeah. I think it might have been a slip, but you said 2021 English vernacular, and I think that's like great to think about. The future. <laughs> I, I live in the future. <laughs> it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a slip. <laughs> um, to our listeners, you can purchase Kazim Ali's The Voice of Sheila Chandra and Kiki Petrosini's White Blood, A Lyric of Virginia uh, in store or on our website. Um, but yeah, do you two have any last things you want to say before we go? Um, only that Skylight Books is one of my favorite places in LA. It's a really beautiful, physically beautiful space. And I love the rec staff recommendations are always so well curated. So I truly miss the era of the browse. <laughs> I long to someday, I'm not very far away from you, I'm in San Diego. So mm -hmm. hopefully someday when we're, you know, things are under control a little bit, we, we can be optimistic. Yeah. I would love to see you guys again. We are open for browsing, but it's just very limited. Yeah, yeah just in thing a strange time. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> so maybe you'll see me at some point. Yeah, definitely. We'll have you sign some copies. Thanks so much for, for sure. having me. It'd be so great to come out to LA and, and book a time for browsing myself. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.